So Judges 2.14 says, So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies, so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges, who saved them out of the, out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. So that is the, the section we're going to cover tonight. Uh, the title of this uh, section is uh, God's Precious Rebels. Uh, so we, we get to meet Israel in their full-blown rebellion in the book of Judges here kind of summarized. So we, we spoke last week, uh, really uh, chapter 2, uh, verse 6, through uh, chapter 3, verse uh, 6 is a commentary or introduction on what we're to expect for the rest of the book of Judges. It's, it's, it's essentially the author's commentary on what you're about to read, like this is kind of how to navigate everything else you're going to go through. And so his interpretation of the rest of the book is important for us because it's very easy to get lost in the messiness of it all once we get in there. Um, when you start reading about the judges and their flawed characters and all the kind of stuff that they do and how they go about freeing Israel, uh, it's important for us to have landmarks to help us navigate that. So this is his commentary, and uh, we kind of get uh, the sense of who God is in the midst of the rebellion of Israel. So last week we talked a lot about their kind of ongoing apostasy as they leave God, they forsake God, and they pursue other gods. And so this week we're going to be focusing specifically on what's God like when we rebel? What's God's like? What, what is God like when his, when his people rebel against him? And, and the, the first uh, thing we're going to notice is that we see him being a jealous God. So we see God being jealous, and you can see that uh, in verse 14. He says, So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the, the reason that's important that his anger is kindled against them, you can ask, like, well, why is God angry with them? Uh, the reason is, if you look back in verse 12, uh, they abandoned the Lord their God and they pursued other gods. It says uh, in the second sentence there in verse 12, it says, they went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. So you see, God is provoked to anger and the reason he's provoked is because they're pursuing gods that are not him um, and they're, they're running after them, they're, they're worshiping them, they're serving these other gods. It says that anger is kindled against the people of Israel. And so he gives them over justly to be plundered by the people around them, the surrounding nations. And this anger is actually, uh, it's, it's a demonstration of God's love for his people. So uh, a good way to think about this is love, by definition, has this exclusivity to it. Um, if you love something, you hate the things that violate that thing that you love. Um, so God calls his people his bride and that he is the husband of, of his nation. These are his chosen people. And since they're his people, if they go against him and they pursue other gods, that is idolatry and that's akin to spiritual adultery. So it's, it's, that's why he uses the language uh, in verse uh, six, uh, 17. It says, uh, they do not listen to their judges for they hoard after other gods 
and bow down to them. So the language is pretty graphic uh, about what Israel is doing and how they're pursuing these other gods. And uh, one of the commentators uh, said, uh, to have a God who loves his people is to have a jealous God. And to have a jealous God is to have an intolerant God. And an intolerant God means that he, he doesn't tolerate pursuit outside of this covenant union that he's established. An easy picture for this in, in our experience is if you uh, get on the altar and you, you say, I do to one person, and then you step off the altar and let's say you're doing life with that person and someone comes up to your spouse and starts flirting with them and, try, and right in front of you and trying to take them away from you and trying to woo them, uh, you would rightly be angry about that kind of an interaction. And the reason is because that's, that's your person. You're, covenant, you're covenantally bound to that person. And so you can't go outside of that relationship. Uh, another another uh, commentator says, no man with any moral fiber would want to share his wife with another man, and neither does God. So God does not tolerate the sharing of his bride, his faithful people, with anybody else. And so uh, we see the anger of the Lord is kindled against them, rightly so. He's a jealous God. Uh, and his jealousy manifests in a bunch of different ways against them. It says uh, in verse uh, 15, uh, whenever they march out, the hand of the Lord is against them for harm, as the Lord had warned. So the Lord, now when they go out, he doesn't just kind of let them, he doesn't let, you know, chance take its course. He actually is overtly against his people when they go out into battle, which is an interesting uh, thing to take note of, that he, uh, he actually puts his hand against them. And Isaiah the prophet talks about this. He says that the, the Lord is now the enemy of his people when they rebel against him. That's how Isaiah phrases it. So we see that uh, not only does he, uh, he go against them because of his jealousy, um, but also this is not just Old Testament God. This is in the New Testament as well. Uh, for example, in Matthew 10, uh, Jesus says, whoever does not love, whoever loves uh, mother and father more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or brother or sister more than me is not worthy of me. So he's, he's demanding a kind of exclusivity that for us is very difficult to wrap our minds around. And nevertheless, it is the most loving thing for him to do because God has bought a people unto himself. He has redeemed them at the, at the high cost of his son on the cross. And then he enters into covenant relationship with them, commits himself to them, and then they just go astray. And they, they run after these other gods. And it's in that context that we should understand that God's jealousy is a manifestation of his love. It's a manifestation of his faithfulness to his people. It would be a more strange thing if he was cool with them running away and pursuing these other gods, because that would actually mean he doesn't care all that much who his bride is, right? Um, so a good love demands a kind of jealousy that, uh, that is manifest with God. And it's, it's okay to be jealous about things that are yours. And so since his people are his, he can be jealous for them. We notice it says in verse uh, 15, uh, the Lord d- does all these things. It says, as the Lord has warned as the Lord has sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. So he does these things because previously he promised he was going to do these things. Uh, and a, a good cross-reference for this is uh, Exodus 34. Um, so if you don't turn there, I'm just going to read a quick excerpt out of Exodus 34. Um, the entire section is verse 11 through verse 16 that you can see. Uh, but I'm just going to pick it up in verse uh, 13 where he's, he's commanding them what they, what they should do. He says, you shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and then they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited. You eat of his sacrifice, 
and you take their daughters for your sons and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons to whore after their gods. So the language is pretty uh, explicit. And if you want to take that up to the the R-rated passages that talk more and more about that, you can look at uh, Ezekiel 16 uh, and Ezekiel 23. Very explicitly talk about the the prostitution of the nation of Israel as they pursue the Baals and the Asherim. And that's also kind of metaphorical in in a spiritual sense, but it's actually very practical because we we talked about last week how part of their worship of these false gods was actually cult prostitution, that they go and they sleep with these cult prostitutes of these temples. So it's, it's an illustration or metaphor and also an accurate description of exactly what's happening in the worship of these other gods. So we see that in the text. Uh, Another passage that almost explicitly talks about the same kind of thing is the Old Testament prophet Hosea. And his whole prophetic book is about uh, a man who's faithful to this uh, adulterous wife. He has children with her, and then she leaves him for these other people. And in fact, it's kind of implied that some of the children aren't actually his. He just takes care of them because his wife is just kind of sleeping around. And uh, the whole point of the book is that God... God's jealousy not only extends into his discipline of his bride, but also into his pursuit of his bride. And that's the second thing you're going to see uh, in the text. In verse 16, you're going to see the gracious God. It says, The Lord raised up judges who save them out of the hand of those who plunder them. And it's probably a good observation here that uh, the same Lord who puts these people against them and puts his hand against them is the same Lord who will then stoop down and pick them up and wipe them off, clean them off, and get them back ready for him. And that's kind of a, it's not a kind of God you would invent. If you were a man trying to create a religion, you would not invent a God who acts in accordance with his own will in a gracious way. The Lord says in several places in scripture that he's actually not like man. That's why he's gracious. In fact, uh, out of Hosea, which I just referenced, uh, if you'll turn to Hosea 11.8, Hosea actually quotes this. Uh, idea. I'm going to read verse 8 and 9. This is the Lord lamenting over the fact that he has to punish Israel for their, uh, for their sins. He says, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? And how can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? And how can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. So God, talking about how he's going to treat his adulterous, rebellious people, concludes that although they're in full just, uh, deserving, they're fully and justly deserving of the punishment that they're about to receive, he actually halts himself and restrains himself and says that when he comes, uh, he's going to come in grace and tenderness as opposed to in wrath. And that's because, as he says, uh, I am God and not a man. So a man, uh, if, they are, if they've been wronged, the natural thing to do would be to get vengeance, right? We have whole movies that are basically built around the main character getting vengeance on someone who's wronged them for something, maybe far in the past, maybe in recent memory. And the whole point of the movie is you're kind of like, milking your own anger, uh, that if someone wronged you in this way, you would be also just in doing the same kind of vengeance. And God says, actually, he's not like man and that he doesn't need to play out his vengeance in that same way, that he's, he's a gracious God.
In fact, that's the very thing that offends Jonah about God. Jonah uh, in chapter four is basically like, I, I didn't want to go to Nineveh because I knew what was going to happen. I knew that you were going to forgive the people. I know that you're a gracious God. And he's like sitting there mad and God's like, are you, are you right to be angry? And th- that's, that's Jonah's whole thing is he's, he's, he's upset with God because God is gracious. God is loving. God is tender. And so that's uh, a curious thing that we see in the text. And so uh, as this graciousness plays out, uh, you see that God raises up judges for them. And this is a, a commentary on what we're going to see going forward in the text. The Lord's graciousness manifests itself in him raising up judges. He doesn't send angels to come save them from their problems. He doesn't send his son yet to come save them from his problems. In this case, he sends people who are divinely ordained to carry out a specific purpose. And that's important because if we read the rest of this text, it might seem to us that, you know, these people are just the strongest military leaders, and so they just amass power, and they come and they lead Israel for a time, and then they fall away. And we can just understand this as kind of a man-centered game that's being played of just like a turf turf battle, right? So when Gideon ascends to power, that's really just Gideon on a power streak, right? But the whole point is God is the one who raises up these judges to lead the people out of their distress, out of their oppression. And so God's invisible hand is at work all over the pages of the book of Judges, even though He's using men as his tools. And that's the same kind of thing that we have a lived experience of in our lifetime. Because in the New Testament, he sends his son. Uh, Sometimes he sends prophets. Sometimes he sends angels to do his bidding. But by and large, the experience of the church has been God raises up particular saints at unique moments in history to kind of stand and be his judge, if you will, or his ambassador for truth, for uh, the defense of the gospel, for the advancement of the kingdom. And that's it's important for us to know that he is able to work through judges, even if they're flawed, uh, because that's exactly how he works today in the church, through, through pastors, through missionaries, through lay people who just want to get the gospel out. That's exactly how um, his hand goes forth. So he's able to do it back then. Same God at work today, kind of in a very similar mechanic. But the judges are particularly like military leaders. They're not really ministers. They're not priests. They're not prophets. They're basically military leaders. And the kind of oppression that they're relieving Israel of is kind of reform from their spiritual idolatry, but really they're doing symptom treatment. So the people of Israel are oppressed by these other Canaanite religions and these other groups. And so God sends them judges to relieve them of the the oppression that these other people put on them. So Gideon delivers them out of the hands of an enemy army, but Gideon himself is guilty of idolatry. And so he delivers them out of like the felt oppression, the, the, the symptom, if you will, but not really the disease itself. The disease kind of gets worse as Judges goes on. But nevertheless, it is Lord's grace that they have these judges. But in verse 17, we see, yet they don't listen to their judges, for they whore after other gods, they bow down to them. And it says, they soon turn aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. And we talked about that last week. They, they leave the old ways behind and they, they pursue this newfound religion. In verse 18, it says, Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord is with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. Now that phrase, when it says the Lord was moved to pity, that is a phrase that uh, should make you recall maybe another time in Israel's history uh, where in Exodus chapter 2, their enslavement to the, to the Egyptian army and it says the Lord is moved to pity for his people. So this isn't uh, moved to pity. Be- it says moved to pity by their groaning. It's not because of their repentance. We've talked about that in the past. It's not like they're doing a good job of actually lamenting their sins. But the actual oppression and the felt weight of that punishment 
is so much that the Lord is moved to pity to almost relieve the punishment from time to time and kind of step in in his graciousness and pull away uh, his righteous wrath on his people. So you see that in, uh, in Exodus uh, 2. Uh, you see it again in uh, Exodus 6, I believe, uh, where it says the Lord is moved uh, for his people. Um, and, and the reason I point that out is because the, the last thing we see in this text is not only is God uh, a jealous God, not only is he uh, a gracious God, but also we see he's an unchanging God because he was the same God hundreds of years ago in Israel's history, moved to compassion for his people in that time. He's the same God here. Uh, and by the time of the New Testament, he sends Jesus because his people are uh, being op- oppressed by, by the Romans. Uh, and he, he's moved to pity for the state of Israel that it's in. You actually see the same thing in the book of Daniel. God is moved to pity for the state that the people are in. And he actually keeps faithful people around, uh, not because they are particularly great, but because he is a particularly compassionate uh, and merciful God. And uh, a, g- a good text to, to look at for this, and this will be the last cross-reference I want to turn to, is Jeremiah 18. Um, so Jeremiah 18, and uh, it's in verse 7 of the text. And this is, this is really about the unchanging nature of God's uh, character. In verse 7 it says, uh, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation that I will build up and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I intended to do to it. So his his whole... Uh, posture there is his his rule and his law is unchanging if he says if he if he curses a nation and says they're destined for destruction and then they relent as Nineveh did then he'll relent from the punishment but if he says good things to the nation like he does to Israel and they pursue other gods then he he can go against what his initial promise was because they violated that contract agreement with with him and so what the whole the whole point of this is this is his unchanging character is that um, he's faithful uh, and when people rebel, he reserves the right to punish them and to be gracious to them, but he reserves the right to punish them, which is bad news for Israel in this moment. Um, but he's an unchanging God. Because when we, when we see things in the text like the Lord is moved to pity, uh, we might be tempted to, from a human uh, stance, say that God can change, change his mind. That he just you know, goes with however Israel's doing, and he, he's playing this out in real time. And as soon as he sees Israel do one thing, he's got to respond and react and figure out, how he's going to behave and obey and, and, and respond to the people's actions. But actually, uh, move to pity is part of his deeper character, which is that he's actually unchanging in all his ways. And his ways are, if they're faithful to him, he blesses them. And if they're unfaithful and disobedient to his laws, he will be justly uh, with his hand against his people. And so we see him, him in his unchanging character. And his jealousy is unchanging, his graciousness is unchanging, which is good because by the time of the New Testament, uh, a rebellious people is against him. And he's, he's so moved to pity by them that he sends his son, second person of the Trinity, down into a human body, taking on a, really a, a humiliating form. And this, this second person of the Trinity comes, lives a perfect life, dies on the cross, and all of that is a manifestation of God's jealousy for his people. He's so jealous for his people, he won't actually tolerate their prolonged idolatry, uh, their prolonged uh, abandonment of him their prolonged, you know, religiosity and their prolonged religious worship. He's, he's so jealous for them that he sends Jesus down to go get them. And he does so faithfully in the text.
And so that's what, uh, what we see uh, really here in Judges and also in the New Testament as well. So, yeah. I'm just going to close this in prayer, and then we can uh, open it up for discussion. Father God, I, uh, I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful for the continued uh, revelation of your truth uh, throughout Old Testament and New Testament that we see uh, on the pages of Scripture, that you are an unchanging God, a God who is unlike uh, any uh, manifestation of the human intellect, any, um, anything that we could drum up and create. is uh, you're, you're so far beyond that, Lord, that your ways are far beyond us. Uh, your mind is far beyond us. You're so unlike man. Um, and that is uh, the thing that is most praiseworthy about you, Lord. And so we thank you for uh, your uh, ability to reach down into our uh, brokenness, into our frail humanity, and, and teach us things about you to, to save us and redeem us unto yourself, uh, to, to tenderly love us when we, when we rebel, when we walk away. Um, and so, Lord, I pray that we would um, rightly understand these truths so that we can reflect on them, so that they can sober our, our lives and our minds and our thinking about you. And so we can respond rightly uh, in worship and in the praise of you, Lord. Uh, we thank you uh, for all that you are and all that you uh, have done for us already. In your name, amen. amen. All right. So there's a bunch of questions that I can ask. I wrote some down, but uh, I'm more curious about if you guys have questions on things first, and then we can move from there. <laughs>